This evening we consider the final Parsha of Chumash Bereshis, Parsha's Vayechi. And the Parsha is uh, permeated with brachos. In the center of the Parsha we have the brachos of Yaakov to his sons. But before that we have the section of the brachos of Menashe and Ephraim. And that is in Perik Memches. Now, as we know, of Yosef's two sons, Menashe is the older, and Ephraim is the younger, and Yosef positions uh, Menashe by Yaakov's right. That seems to be the intuitive uh, place. He assumes that uh, Yaakov will place his right hand on Menashe, the older. In the event, that's not what, that's not what happens. As the uh, Pasuk says, it's in Perik uh, Memches, so Yaakov, he, he sends his hand forward. He puts his right hand on Ephraim. Even though Ephraim is at his left side, but he puts his right hand on Ephraim. His left hand on Menashe. He switched his hands around. Whatever those final words mean, Ki because Menashe was the Bechor, even though Menashe was the Bechor, okay. As we know, then, uh, Yosef is uh, quite upset with this. Uh, so much so that he actually looks to mo- seeks to move Yaakov's hand to right, his right hand to Menashe. But Pasuk says no. By Yima'ein Aviv, Yaakov refuses. He does not allow his hands to be moved. Vayomer, Yodati Bini, Yodati. I know, I know where everyone is, and I know what you're thinking, and I know. Gamhu Yela'am, Vigamhu Yigdal. Menashe indeed will also be great. Vulam Achiv Hakaton, Yigdal Mimenu. But his younger brother will be greater than him. It's very interesting uh, to note, uh, seemingly consistently, as much as uh, there is great value and precedence placed on the position of Bechor. We don't really see the Bechor emerging as preeminent that much uh, for a while, indeed. Uh, so, uh, and this continues. We can understand, if one may say, why Yosef is uh, uh, concerned when he sees that Ephraim is being given preferential treatment, he was the younger brother, he was given preferential treatment, and it caused a, a lot of trouble. But nonetheless, Yaakov reassures him that everything is, is as it should be, all the hands are placed where they should be. What is the significance of placing the right hand by Ephraim, on Ephraim, and the left hand on Menashe? Well, on a simple level, of course, we know that the Yamin, the right hand, always represents the stronger side and the more dominant side, Yamin Hashem, and we always like to start things on the right side, and um, so on and so forth. So it's very simply a question of, uh, 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 of some type of advantage. The Meshachachma presents an entirely new dimension to the difference in the significance of the right and the left. And he begins, actually, by referring us to a drosha of Rabionis and Ibishitz. As we know, the great Rabionis and Ibishitz of Prague, who wrote many, many works, but his drushas are uh, very famous. They are the Yaros Dvash, 
35 drushes, I believe, and the drushes, they could be 20 pages long. I mean, shul membership where you really got your money's worth. Uh, these are lengthy, lengthy drushes. And they are a classic and a staple, indeed, for, for the, for the Baalei Hadrush, or should be. And Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz himself makes reference to the Pesach in Shmuel Aleph. So the context is that Shaul at that time is king, and, but David is emerging as a very, very successful general. <coughs> so much so that they began to make a song about Shaul and David. And the way the song went was, Hikash Shaul ba'alafav, Shaul has, has smoked or felled in his thousands, the David berivavosav, but David in his myriads, in his tens of thousands, as if to say, Shaul, when he went to war, he felled a certain amount, David much, much more. And that became like a, 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 a refrain, a song that would be sung. And Shaul heard this song and did not like it. And Shaul says <coughs> that it, this is what they say, that, that, that I have felled in my thousands, David in his myriads, his next step will be the kingship, will be a bid for kingship. At that point, Shaul is already wary of David in terms of, of, the, of the crown itself. And here too, we ask, okay, he's able to kill more of the enemy than you. But you assume that if that's the case, he will be making a bid for, for kingship. Based on what? And, and on a simple level, it may well be that his success will lead him to, to uh, pursue other success. But Rabbi Yominus and Ibishad says something else is happening here. There is a posthuk in Tehillim that we uh, mention frequently. And that is, it's in Yoshe B'Seser Elion. So the posthuk says, Yipol mitzidcha elef, from your side. Which side? We have to see. From your side, a thousand will fall. And a myriad from your right side. So the, the two sides, one is called your side and one is called your right. Which means by inference, of course, your side is your left side. But, but how are these the same currency? Left and right are apropos of each other. They're both sides. So why does the Pasuk not distinguish between the, the, the left and the right, but rather between the side and the right, with the implication that the side is the left side? And what does all this mean? Says Rebionis and Ibershitz, <coughs> there is a qualitative difference between what is represented by the left side and the right side. It is not merely a question of stronger it is a different order of activity altogether. And by way of introduction, <coughs> we refer to a pasuk in Yeshaya, in Yeshaya Memches, <coughs> where Hashem says, again, Af yadi, my hand, undefined, my hand, Yasda Aretz, established the earth, Viyamini, and my right hand, Tibcha Shamayim, developed the heavens. We see that the Yemin, Yemini Tipcha Shamayim, the right hand is associated with heavens, which means by contrast, the undefined hand, the left hand, is earth, Afyadi Yasta Eretz. And what that means is there are two ways to succeed. 
there are two there are two pathways of success there is success within the natural realm within the temporal realm and that's eretz that's earth and that's yadi that's the left that's the left hand but then there is the heavenly realm which is a different level altogether it could be supernatural or certainly a a qualitatively higher level of activity and that's yemini tipcha shamay and that's why says Rebbeinus and Eibachitz, and that Pasuk in Tehillim, when the Pasuk says that a thousand will fall from your side, which is your left side, so from your right side, it's not 1,100, or 1,200, or, 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 or 1,500. It's a new order. It's a, th- it's a thousand from one side, and a myriad from the right-hand side, because Yiminecha represents a more miraculous order, which is a completely different plane. A completely different metric. That's Elef from your left side, a thousand from your left side, a myriad from your right side. The Pasuk says in Tehillim Kuf Vav that Hashem says to David, HaMelech, Shev Limini. Shev Limini, Hashem says to David, so to speak, sit by my right side. And what does it mean to tell the king to sit by your right side? It means that the king is entitled and able to access what is, refer- what is re- represented by the right side, which is this higher order of function, this higher order of success. And that is why the very first inkling that Shaul has that David might be headed for the kingship is when he hears that song. Shaul has felled in his thousands. Hika Shaul ba'alofov which means he's doing well, but he's doing well in terms of thousands. The David Berivavosov, David is in his myriads, which means that Shaul is more like Tzidcha, a thousand, or by the thousand they will fall. And obviously we take what we can get, but by, that's by the thousand. But for, but for David, it's Viuravava Miminecha. But that's Malchus. That's Shevlimini. And that's, why, and that's why Shaul says, if he is succeeding exponentially more than I am into, the, into that categorical shift from Eleph to Revava, so then, so then he, he's headed for the Malchus next. And, and, and Shaul took his measures to, to, pre- to prevent that, which is the whole ensuing story of Shaul and David, which itself needs to be understood. But we won't pursue that for now. What does all of this have to do with Menashe and Ephraim? Says Meshachachma, each of these two tribes, Menashe and Ephraim, have a very significant historical personality that really represent the apex of their success. As Rashi himself says, when, when Yaakov says, I know that Menashe will be great, he will. And who represents the greatness? In Sefer Shoftim, it, it seems almost, I think with that exception, that each of the tribes has one personality that really emerges as, as, as the, the, the finest product of that tribe. For Shevet Menashe, it's Gidon. Gidon is for Menashe, and he saved the Jewish people at the, at, in his time. So for Menashe, it's Gidon. Who is the significant personality from Ephraim? Of course, Yehoshua. Yeshua ben Nun, Lemate Ephraim, Hoshea ben Nun. 
Each of them led the Jewish people in their time. But says Meshachachma, but consider how they led the Jewish people. In what way? In what order of success? The story of Menashe, we know. Pardon me, the story of Gidon, we know. And that is that they were uh, harassed by the, the, the Midianim, etc. And, and, and Gidon, he gets his, albeit small army, but they use devices and ruses. They have, the, they have the torches, but then there are the jars on top so that they approach in complete darkness. They smash the jars, and all of a sudden it's complete light and there's an incredible mighty noise. There's panic with the Midianites. They start killing each other. They start, uh, they start running away, and that is the victory of... Uh, it's, it's incredible, but it's all within the, the temporal sphere. It is, it is a, a perfect victory using ingenuity. And that's Gidon, representing Menashe. Ephraim is Yeshua. Yeshua's victory enlists other forces. When the walls of Jericho come tumbling down because you blew the shofar, and when the sun and the moon stand still because you need time before Shkia in order to finish your battle, so that's a different, that's a different order. And moreover, we can now see how this all comes together. The success of Menashe, represented by Gidon, it's, a, it's the left hand. It's by your side. It's close to you. It's, it's, it's uh, Mitzidcha. And that's why Menashe gets the left hand. When Ephraim gets the, the, the right hand, it doesn't just mean that Ephraim will be more successful. It's a different order of success. Because for Ephraim, it's revava miminecha. And thus, the success of Ephraim is, is often supernatural. With the battle with Yericho, with Shemesh begivondom, v'yarech be'emek ayolom. So this is an entirely new insight into um, the right and the left for Ephraim and Menashe. And what's fascinating is, and what, what we, we don't do enough uh, when it comes to the brachas of Vayichi, is to thread them through to the later brachas of Moshe in Vezos HaBracha. Because Moshe's brachos, uh, we hear them a lot on Simchas Torah, but Moshe's brachos are really a, continue, a progression, a continuation, in some respects an elevation of the brachas that Yaakov gave. And so we've seen that Yaakov has, has identified these two sides within Ephraim and Menashe. And see how that reverberates in Parshas Vezos HaBracha. Because what does Moshe say as part of his bracha for Yosef? Bechor Sharo Hadarlo, right? The, the, he's he's Bechor Shor. To him is glory. Vikarneim Re'em Karnav. And he has, he has the horns of the Re'em. The horns of the Re'em are two sides, one on the right, one on the left. And what are they for? To attack the enemy. Behem amim yinagach yachtav, aretz, right? They're to gore the enemy. And how does the Apostle conclude? Vehem rivavos Ephraim, vehem alfei menashe. They are the myriads of Ephraim. They are the thousands of Menashe. And we see how that is really a... Uh, a, a resonance of what Yaakov was saying by giving the right hand to Ephraim so Ephraim strikes in, in myriads like David did and that's Rivavos Ephraim by giving the left hand or, or perceiving that the left hand is more appropriate for Menashe so Menashe's successes are like Shaul Alfei Menashe Yipol Mitzidcha 
Elef. So it really, on the one hand, it's a tour of Tanakh through the, uh, through the firstly, Rebbe Emerson Eibeshitz, and then as the Meshachachma brings it back from, from David and Shaul to Ephraim and Menashe. From there, I'd like actually to move towards the end of the Parsha before coming back, because in Perik Nun, uh, which is after the, the passing and burial of Yaakov, so the brothers are afraid. In Perik Nun, Pasuk Tesvav. <clears throat> Perik Nun, Pasuk Tesvav. Vayiru Ache Yosef, and Yosef's brothers uh, saw Kimesavihem that their father had died, meaning things had changed. Seemingly, things had cooled between them and Yosef, and they began to be afraid. Vayom, when they said Luyustamenu Yosef, it could be that now that Yaakov has passed away, Yosef will finally exact his revenge against us. He may inflict on us all the evil, all the bad that we did to him. That was the brother's fear. Now we know in the end that it was unfounded, but in the brother's conception, it was not unfounded. It was a very real fear. So much so that they did the following. They sent a message to Yosef in Pasuk Tetzayin, Vayitzavuah Yosef Lemor, your father commanded us to give you this message before he died. And what is the message? Please tell Yosef, Please bear their sin and do not uh, take revenge against them. And when Yosef hears this, he cries. Why would they suspect him? But what is, the, what is the critical point? As, as Rashi comments, Yaakov made no such message. Yaakov gave no such instruction. But they said he did. They said he did because they were afraid. So afraid that they fabricated this message from Yaakov. In Rashi's words, and, and we'll see where it comes from in just a moment, Shinu Badovar, they changed things. Changed things meaning they changed it from being not true to yes true. Mipnei hashalom. For the sake of peace. Kilotziva Yaakov king. Yaakov never commanded them. So this is now very interesting. Because what we see the brothers doing, and we need to see how it's assessed, is that, uh, that if for the sake of peace, which itself needs to be defined... They, they change the truth. All these terms are very, very, um, need to be uh, crystallized to change the truth for the sake of peace. It happens to be that this Pasuk is the first of three sources that are cited by the Gemara for the idea of changing the truth for the sake of peace. The Gemara is in Masechus Yevomus and Daf Samechei Ahmed Beis. And it begins by saying, and, and uh, who speaks first? Rabbi Ilah uh, says, It's mutter to change the truth for the sake of peace. And cites our Pasuk that they said in Yaakov's name a message which he never said. That is source number one, the brothers with Yosef. Then, Rabbi Nasan, source number two, because the first source said it's mutter to do it. 
we assume if the brothers did it, the Gemara looks at that and, and, and sanctions it and says that, it's, that it was acceptable to do it. Rabbi Nason says it's a mitzvah to change the truth for the sake of peace. But what is his source? He takes us back to Sefer Shmuel. When Shmuel is told to anoint David, he responds with voices of concern to Hashem. Eich eilech, how can I go? Shaul is the king now. The Shama Shaul, the Haragani. If Shaul hears that I am anointing David as the king, he will kill me. So how can I, how can I go to anoint David? To which Hashem said, Take a young animal, and if Shaul asks where you're going, tell him that you're going to bring a korban. Which, once you're doing it, is true, but that's not the real reason that you're going. So it's what we would call a white changing of the truth. And, but Hashem told him to do it. And that is the second source. Shmuel's uh, presentation new presentation of the, of the situation, which is not the real presentation of the situation, for the sake of peace. The final example, which I think is the best known of all three, actually has, is from earlier in Bereshis. Rabbi Yishmael Tana, and Rabbi Yishmael they taught, God al-Hashalom. You see how great peace is. Not only is it mutter to change for peace, not only is it a mitzvah, even Hashem changed a presentation of events for the sake of peace. What is the, what is the reference here? The beginning of Parshas Vayera. When Sarah hears <coughs> that she is uh, destined or going to have a child in a year's time, so she says, My husband is old. It's too old to have a child. And then when Hashem rebukes uh, Sarah through Avram, and that itself is interesting why it happens that way. Hashem does not rebuke Sarah directly, but rather says to Avram, why did Sarah laugh? To say, how can I have a child? I'm too old. In other words, Sarah uh, herself said that Avram is too old. But when Hashem plays that back to Avram or, or, or reports that to Avram, he says that Sarah said that she's old, but that's not exactly what she said. But Mipnei Hashalom, Hashem changed. Now, <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that if we wish to understand, if we wish to look for a definition of what peace is, Mipnei Hashalom, in this equation the source that will, te- will be most telling for us is the third source, is Avram and Sarah, for the very simple reason. The first source, which is in our Parsha, which is where we began, where the brothers, they, uh, they're afraid. They change, they make up a story because they're afraid. But what are they afraid of? The way that they describe it in, in the verse, they don't know what Yosef is going to do. Maybe he'll, he'll return all the evil that we did to us. Are they, what are they afraid of that he'll do to them? That he'll kill them? That he'll, 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 he'll torture them? That he'll... We don't know. But the, but the more they are afraid of, the less of a chiddush it is that they lied. Because if they really thought their lives were in danger... 
There's a lot of things you can change if, you, if your life is in danger. You can change, you can, you can violate Shabbos. You can break Shabbos if you're, if you're in fact, almost everything in the Torah you can, you can override if your life is in danger. Which makes it very interesting when we come back to the Gemara where it says, you can, you can, we see from the brothers that you can adjust, you can change the truth for the sake of peace. If peace means your life, you can change a lot of things. And this is certainly true in the case of Shmuel. Shmuel says explicitly, my worry is that Shaul will hear and he will kill me. Now there's a term for that. It's, it's, it's given a very uh, delicate name here for the sake of peace. Uh, we're aware of another designation of that concept. It's called pikuach nefesh. If you feel your life is in danger, you can do a lot of things. Which means from the first two examples, where, the, where seemingly the worry is extreme, so it's less of a chiddush that you, that you can change the truth in a situation like that. If you're in danger, possibly mortal danger, so of course you can, seemingly. And therefore, without a doubt, the, the working example for us as to what is called Mipnei HaShalom is the third case. And it is a chiddush indeed. Firstly, because Hashem himself changed, as per the Gemara, Hashem himself changed. That itself is a question, did Hashem say something that Sarah didn't say, or, or, or neglect to say everything she did say? She did begin by saying, After I'm withered, will I become young again? So she is saying that she's old. She just also said that Avram is old, which means when Hashem changed, it just means he did not report the entire thing she said, just the part about her, not about Avram. So says Ramban. But either way, if it, if whatever level of change it is, it's for the sake of peace. Peace between who and whom? Between Avram and Sarah. And let us consider, to the extent that we can, and we can, how much of a peace issue is this? How much of a, of a conflict are you avoiding by not telling Avram that when Sarah initially heard the news, she said, it's impossible. Avram is too old. It's not a criticism of Avram. It's not a pejorative comment. It happens to be true. It's a biological fact. All things being equal, barring miracles, it tends to be that if you're 99 years old, you're too old to have a child. And Sarah is 89 years old, and she's also that. That's not a, pe- people who, who are, are 99 years old, I don't know that they, they are, take offense, n- naturally, at being told that they're too old to have a child. I mean, okay, so they're ready for grandchildren, or great-grandchildren, or, 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 or whatever it is. It's a, it's a fact. So this is very interesting. And moreover, we may also add, I mean, who are we talking about? This is, not, this is Avram and Sarah. Avram and Sarah are people who have refined their personalities. They're the people that have been living and, you know, uh, married together for all this time. These are big tzaddikim. How much of a, of a ruffle do we, do, we, do we imagine would have happened had Hashem really just said that? She said that, 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 that you're too old. What would it have been? A momentary whatever until Avram realized, well, it, it really is true. And even so, Hashem changed from my husband is old to I'm old. Even that the, the minutest of uh, elements of, uh, of friction is to be avoided. That is a big chiddush indeed. That's what we learn from the third case of changing for the sake of peace.
There are two other, while we're on this topic, which I believe is a fascinating topic, and there's much, much more to say, but just to, uh, to stay contained within um, the, 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 the framework here, two other uh, points of reference with regards to the idea of changing the truth for the sake of peace. There is another place in the Gemara where this seems to be at play. And the beginning of the Gemara is well known, but the balance, I'm not sure. It's in Maseches Ksubis in Daf Yud Zion. And it's the famous question of Ketzad Meraktin Lifne Hakala. Ketzad Meraktin Lifne Hakala, which many people are familiar with as a song, they may know or, or, that it's, it's actually a Gemara. And what does it mean? Ketzad Meraktin literally means how do you dance, which depends on the person, there's your answer. But the Gemara means by this, what do you say? What do you say in praise of the Kala? And that's something that we don't really do anymore. We have, we have set songs and no one can hear anything anyway because uh, the music is, uh, drowns out everything so it doesn't really make a difference. But, but in, originally, it's what do you say in praise of the Kala to the Hassan? And amazingly, it's a machlokas between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai. And Beis Hillel say the famous answer, Kala Noa Chasuda, which I think also made it into the song. Kala Noa Chasuda, a wonderful, amazing girl. She's absolutely incredible. That's Beis Hillel. Beis Shammai are a little bit stricter in terms of protecting the truth. And Beis Shammai say, that you say, you have to tell it like it is. You have to basically say what she is. And if she's not, you can't say it. And, and moreover, Beishamai challenged Beishillel and said, if she's, let's say she's, she's clearly not, however these things are defined, but she fails on every single standard. How can you say, the Torah says, you cannot, you cannot tell a lie. And Beis Hillel respond in a very interesting way. They respond with a moshal. And Beis Hillel say like this, if someone's brought something from the shuk, which you don't particularly think is so uh, amazing, but it's done. The purchase is done. And then they show it to you for your appraisal. What are you going to do? Are you going to praise it or will you criticize it? It's no, it's too late. What's the point of criticizing it? Nothing. You'll obviously, you'll, you'll forget them. You'll, 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 you'll make them feel good. Oh, wonderful. So regardless of what, of what you personally think. And the same is true here, says Beis Hillel. What is the meaning of this exchange? It seems, and some indeed say, that Beis Hillel is also, once again, taking, invoking the license of changing the truth for the sake of peace. You do not want their, their marriage to begin by, he, by him hearing anything other than Kalanava Chasuda. So regardless of, uh, of any other considerations, it's called Mipnei HaSholem. But the Maharsha says no. That's not what's going on here. What Beis Hillel are introducing into the question of changing the truth for the sake of peace is that there are two types of truth. There is objective truth and subjective truth. What they call in economics positive statements and normative statements. That means that if, if there's three of something and you, and you say there's four, that is, that is an objective mistruth. 
But so many things are, are subjective. And that's, it's also true. It's true in the sense that from someone's point of view, that's how they see it. And you are endorsing their point of view. That's what Beis Hillel meant by, by invoking this mushal of the person who's he's made a purchase in the marketplace. And the, uh, uh, there's many different types of things because there's many different types of tastes. So if he's uh, brought some garment and then the question is, well, what are you going to say about it? He obviously likes it. And you might not. But subjective things are a matter of taste, or the lack thereof. And, and that's why Basilan say it's not, it's not changing the truth to voice what for someone else, in their opinion, is, 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 is correct. If you say it looks nice, it's not wrong, even though you don't think it looks nice, but someone else does. And that is the concept of subjective truth. And what's very interesting is the Gemara adds one line to this whole Beis Hillel Beis Shammai exchange. Mikan Amru Chachamim. From here, based on this, the Chachamim said, Le'olam Teidato Shel Adam Me'ureves Im Habrios. A person's mind shall always be, well, it's, a, it's an expression, Me'urev Im Habrios. But what does Me'urev Im Habrios mean? We say if someone is, gets along with everyone, well, perhaps we understand that means like from the word be pleasant to everyone. But it could mean something else. doesn't not from the word pleasant, but from the word mixed in. Eruv is merging together. Taroves is a mixture. means you, you're encouraged to merge your, your opinion with other people's opinions. To allow an admixture of someone else's opinion into your frame of reference. Because th- their opinion, from their point of view, is equally as valid as yours. Perhaps even more so. You may disagree. But on these things, if they are a matter of opinion, so have a taroves. Allow your mind to be a blend of the different ways that different people see things, so that when you say that looks very nice, it really is true, because you've, you've, you've granted entry of their opinion into your uh, spectrum of possible uh, responses. So this is uh, the Chiddush of the Marsha, which of course is relevant in many, many cases. Um, sometimes we, for, we forget that a lot of what we're stating as absolute truths are, are really uh, matters of, of opinion. The final point, just on this before we, we get back to Pasha Vayechi, again on the matter of changing the truth for the sake of peace. <coughs> Another aspect of, of the definition of truth is that it's, it, what, is, what is a truth and what is a lie? A truth is when you say the truth, and a lie is when you're saying something which isn't true. That means to say that you give a person to misunderstand. <coughs> but what if a person uh, says says something, and it's clear that what he means is something else. He may be being polite. In other words, um, 
He may say things like, uh, that's, that's very interesting, or even though he doesn't think it's very interesting. Is that, what is that? That's lying for the sake of peace. And sometimes it's, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right for many people mean, there, there is no doubt in my mind that you are incorrect. So, so uh, what is that? Lying for the sake of peace? But rather, it's a way of speaking, and it's understood. And sometimes it's really just for the uh, fluidity uh, uh, of interactions. <clears throat> if a person would leave a message, a pre-recorded message on their voicemail, and this is a standard message, which uh, if, so, if a person gets through to your voicemail, you will say, hello, this, uh, you've reached so-and-so. I'm sorry, I can't come to the phone right now. Uh, please leave your name and number, and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. I think that is, a, that is a standard message. But potentially, it could be problematic because depending on who's calling, you may be pre-recording a lie. And more than one, in fact. Because you begin by saying, I can't come to the phone right now. Well, that might not necessarily be true. In fact, in many cases, you might actually be staring at the phone as this uh, message is being recorded. You know who it is. You just don't have time for them. So I can't come to the phone. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's hard to say for sure in advance. And moreover, if you say, <coughs> if you leave a message, I will get back to you as soon as possible. Rarely do you return the call as soon as possible, meaning you put everything else on hold. But anything that could possibly get in the way of you returning this call is set to the side. That's not so. But why is this not problematic? Because if you actually left the message as, it is, as is the reality, some people might find it uh, offensive. Because the reality is much more saying that uh, I'm aware that you're calling either now or later. If you leave a message, there is a chance that I will return your call, depending on how important I think it is, or you are. So that's, that's more direct, but of course, that's not correct. It's not covered abrius. So, so we, we use these terminologies, but it's, I don't even think we're, we're entering into the realm that's called changing the truth for the sake of peace. You're not changing the truth. It, it's understood that when you say, as surely as if you would say, you know, I'll be there in a minute, or I'll be there straight away, which sometimes is impossible. You might be in a different uh, uh, neighborhood, but it's understood soon, etc., and so forth. So these, I think, are a significant parts of the very interesting discussion. Much, much more to say, Mitzvah Shem. Maybe we'll, we'll revisit this uh, at another time. Uh, but it all begins with the brothers, with their Koamar Avicha, because they changed Mipnei Hashalom. And from there, let us come back to one of the brothers, uh, to one of the brachos, and that is the bracha of Yehuda. Now, the bracha of Yehuda has many parts, but I would like to focus on one phrase, actually, I mean, within the context of a pasuk, but one phrase. So the pasuk is in Perik Memtes, pasuk ches. Perik Memtes, pasuk ches. Yehuda, atayo ducha achecha. So uh, first we've had Reuven, then Shimon and Levi, and then it is time for Yehuda. 
your brothers will recognize you. Remember, as an aside, but uh, worth mentioning, it's part of the uh, of the Masora. My uncle, Rav Cooperman, whose name was Yehuda, went through uh, many different kufars where there was a lot of opposition to his uh, uh, educational uh, institutions and, and so on and so forth. He got a lot of chizik from a meeting that he once had with Rabbi Vadi Yosef. That's all. And Rabbi Vadya, of course, Torah, even in his conversation, the pearls of Torah, and he met uh, Rav Cooperman, and he said to him, Yehuda atayuducha achecha. In the end, they will, they will recognize, and they'll uh, understand uh, what it is that you did, which uh, uh, it certainly has uh, be- become uh, the case. Either way, so Yehuda atayuducha achecha, yodcha b'orefaivecha, your hand is in the nape of your, of your enemy, the, the, the sons of your father, meaning your brothers, but, but of course there's more than one mother, so more than one wife, so it's they will all bow down to you. And the phrase that I would like to focus on is your hand in, in the nape of your enemy, which sounds like your enemy isn't doing very well. This is you defeating your enemy. Hmm. Uh, what does this mean? To what? To when does this refer? What is the understanding? To what is Yaakov referring when he says Yodcha Be'oref Oivecha? Rashi says Bimei David in the days of David, and in fact he quotes the pasuk Ve'oivai Tatali Oref. David, in, in his famous song to Hashem, it's in Tinim Perik Yud Ches, I believe, or, 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 or in, also in Shmuel, the end of Sefer Shmuel, the almost identical, there's two sets of 52 psukim, it's the Haftarah for Shvi uh, Shal uh, Pesach, and so on, Hazinu also. V'oivai tatali orif, you have given my enemies to me by the nape. That's what David said, and that's where there was the fulfillment of this idea of Yodcha Be'orif Oivecha. Which means, according to Rashi, not surprisingly, is a reference to something that will happen. Which is interesting. Everything else in the Pasuk is phrased in the future. They will recognize you. They will bow down, which presumably is when you're the king, when the king comes from Yehuda. is stated more as a, as a, as a situation. But either way, it's all in the future. As, the, as David gets the Malchus, so then he, uh, he deals with the enemies of, of, of the Jewish people. According to others, this expression, Yodcha Be'orifaivecha, referred to something that had already happened. The Rizyu Yushalmi in Maseches Ksubis, in the first paragraph of Ksubis, deals and is uh, uh, related to many of the very difficult gezeros that the enemies of the Jewish people leveled against them at the time of the, well, certainly at the time of the Mishnah, which is really Rome. And the Yerushalmi says, Barishona gozru shmad Yehuda. Initially, the shmad means the very, very difficult decrees from Rome were primarily in the territory of Yehuda, Judea. Why? Because they had a tradition, however this tradition got passed down to them, 
that Yehuda killed Esau. Rome is considered to be the, the spiritual heir to Esau as a power. And they took exception to this. And they, they, they had this Masora that it was Yehuda that killed Esau. Shene'emar, Yodcha ba'oref oivecha, quoting our Pasuk. Your hand is in the nape of your enemy. That enemy is Esau. So this is very interesting. The Yerushalmi informs us of a number of things. Firstly, that Yehuda killed Esau. And, and more, moreover, that was known to Rome at the time. And furthermore, this resulted in, in particular persecution of the territory of Yehuda. So <clears throat> each of these points, of course, is, is fascinating to, to consider and contemplate. Uh, I believe that we are more familiar with the idea that it was Chushim, Chushim ben Dan, right? The son of um, son Dan. That's a whole story. It's a Gemara in Masechet Soto and Dafyud Gimel, and he's the one that killed Esav. There is interestingly a Tosfos in Gittin in Dafnun Hay who, who who harmonizes the two traditions. It was perhaps a collaborative effort uh, in, in in one form or another. But either way, the Yerushalmi accredits Yehuda with the killing of his uncle, Esav. And interestingly, that Yerushalmi is not the only place where this is referred to in Chazal. In Parshas Vezos Abracha, so once again, we are moving between Yaakov's brachas and Moshe's brachas. So Moshe's bracha to Yehuda, so one of the things that he says is, actually, it's, a, it's only one pasuk, his drasha to his, his uh, bracha to Yehuda, Le Yehuda Amar, Vezos Le Yehuda, etc. Shema Hashem called Yehuda, Velamotu Vienu, Yodov Ravlo, Yodov Ravlo, his hands did great things for him. What does that mean? Says the Sifrei in Parsha Vezos Abracha, Bisha'ah Sheharag Es Esav, when he killed Esav, that's, that's a Yeshakoach from Moshe. Yodov so the Sifrei also is endorsing, concurring with this idea, this Masora, that it was Yehuda that killed Esau. And in fact, a description, a lengthier description, elaboration of, of what exactly happened and when it happened is to be found in the Medrash Tehillim, a collection of Medrashim called Medrash Shocher Tov, which is known as Medrash Tehillim. And in Perik Yudches, which is, what, as we said, Perik Yudches mirrors the, that, that song of David where he says, You delivered my, my uh, enemy to me uh, by the nape of the neck. Says the Medrash Tehillim, that is a reference to Yehuda at the time that he killed Esau. And moreover, it describes what happened. It was at the time of the burial of Yitzchak, where both Yaakov and Esau were involved. And uh, Yaakov was left alone. The brothers left Yaakov alone together with Yitzchak. They didn't want to see him in his time of, of distress or disrepair. They wanted to give him like a private moment alone with Yitzchak. So it's just him left alone. And the Medri says that Esav wanted to seize the opportunity. He's been waiting for this time. And he did not. And he did not wait any longer. Zrizim makdimim. As soon as Yitzhak has been has been buried, so Yaakov is alone and in a sense vulnerable. So Esav snuck into the cave behind him to kill him. And Yehuda saw that, and he went in after Esav, and he saw that Esav was about to kill Yaakov, and he struck first. 
and he killed Esau. That's, that's a medrash. So, uh, w- from the Yerushalmi in Ksubis, from the Sifrei in Vezos Abracha, from Medrash Ochertov, we have this Chut uh, HaMeshulash, this uh, triangulation of, uh, of, the, of the notion that Yehuda was the one that killed Esau, and that's Yodcha Be'oref Oivecha. So for Rashi, it's in the future, and it will be expressed by David when, when he is king. For these other sources, it's something that's already happened. And they're not a contradiction to each other, but each one gives a different interpretation. But then enter the Meshechachma. Meshechachma understands that it is much closer to what Rashi is saying, meaning it's in the future. And it is, it's, it's closer to the time of Malchus based David, but not exactly, the, not exactly that time. In other words, Rashi sees the fulfillment of this idea when David is already king, and he is now Yadcha Ba'orifoyvecha. Meshachachma says no. This is not a description of what David did when he was king. It's a description of how David came to be king, of how, why it was that the, the, the monarchy was, was in the province of Yehuda, in the domain of Yehuda. And he takes us now to, back to Sefer Shmuel, in the war with Amalek. This is the Haftarah for Pasha Zohar, right? the famous war with Amalek. And, and uh, as we know, Shaul assembles an army and they, uh, they go out to war against Amalek, but, but they, they, ha- they have Rahmanus a little bit, right? And, and they spare Agag and, and they spare some of the animals. They don't, they don't do exactly what they, what they were meant to do, and it, in the end it kind of came back to haunt them. Shaul lost, lost, lost the Malucha over that, as we know. Korah Hashem es Mamnachtucha. But Meshachachma says, look carefully at what the Pasuk describes, you'll see something very interesting. The, when it describes Shaul assembling his army, it says, Vayishama Shaul es ha'am. Shaul sends out a message to the people, batlaim, and then he starts counting them, right through the sheep, right, he starts uh, tallying his army. Mataim elef ragli, 200,000 foot soldiers. Va'aseres alafim es ish Yehuda, and 10,000 from Yehuda. So again, the army that Shaul takes has been described as, he sent a message to the Am, and he counted the Am, he counted them as 200,000, and then you had 10,000 from Yehuda. So the first thing which is very interesting is that we already see that Yehuda is a distinct group from what we would call the Am. As if to say, and this Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky points out in the, in the Parshas uh, Masi, uh, we normally don't expect to hear of Yehuda as a distinct entity as opposed to the rest of the Jewish people until, until the kingdom is split. And that's the point where, where Yeruvam takes everyone north and then Yehuda kind of stays behind Malchus Yehuda. But we see that they're already in the time of Shaul HaMelech. And the truth is, even in the time of Shoftim, you have separate references to Yisrael and to Yehuda. It's interesting. There was, a, there was already some type of... It was in any, no way a, a matter of a belligerence or, or, or a conflict, but it was distinct either way. And that you have already here. 
200,000 from the Am, 10,000 from Yehuda. Why is this significant? Because the Pasuk then begins to describe that the, the people wavered a little bit. Shaul among them. The Pasuk says, Vayachmol Shaul Vehaam. Al Agag, Val Metafatzon, Vabakar, Amishnim, etc. Who had Rachmanus, which was misplaced Rachmanus at that time? Shaul and the Am. But what, but what, is, the, what is the implication? The army wasn't just Shaul and the Am, there was also 10,000 from, from Ish Yehuda. Yeah, they didn't, they were not Chomel. If this is Amalek, if this is the enemy of the Jewish people, and it needs to be dealt with, so then it needs to be dealt with. And this was the moment of switch. Because Shaul, as a result of having Rachmanus on Amalek, he lost the Malchus. But then, but then who, who took it in his head? Someone from Yehuda. Why? Because they were not Chomel. Because this was an implacable and intractable enemy who's, who, who is sworn to the destruction of the Jewish people, so then, so then they need to be uh, defeated completely. And who did that? Yehuda. And Meshachachma says that is the connection between these two expressions, Yodcha Be'oref Oivecha, which leads to Yishtachavu Lecha B'nei Avicha. Yishtachavu Lecha B'nei Avicha is becoming king. But that's preceded by Yodcha Be'oref Oivecha. And that is the quality of Yehuda, as we see in that war. And needless to say, the, the, uh, that's Bayamim Ahim Basmanazeh, there's a time for a chemla, there's a bit, there, there are certain situations where it, it, it doesn't lead to any good. And with, with the best of intentions, uh, the malchus goes with Yehuda the, the, because the, the melech needs to be able to confront Amalek uh, without chemla, the chemla that, that, that they would not grant uh, the Jewish people and do not grant the Jewish people and to deal with them accordingly. These brachas are really important at future times. And these two mitzvahs are always bound up with each other. The mitzvah of appointing a king and the mitzvah of destroying Amalek, they're, they're, the three, they're two of the three mitzvahs that are always together as a trilogy. Appointing a king, destroying Amalek, and building the, the, building the base of Bechira. That's the Gemara and Sanhedrin and Dafyud Zayin uh, Rambam uh, codifies it. We see how closely these t- together these are. And so... Uh, we hope that the uh, the brachos of Yaakov will stand us in, in the stead. Amalek, uh, over the course of history, has adopted many children. And many children have, have adopted Amalek as their patron. And, uh, and, and the message from Yaakov, the message from the Torah, really, as carried out by Yehuda, uh, is something that uh, should be given at uh, to do what needs to be done, and it should pave the way in Mirz Hashem for all of those other things, for a turning of Malchus in the full sense of the word. And binyan beis habechira itself, b'mehira b'yameinu, amen, chazak, chazak, v'nis chazik.